I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. Many of you have probably heard of the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diet. Uh, this made a big splash when this paper was published. The idea was uh, the researchers tried to come up with a diet that is good for individual humans and good for the planet and is sustainable, will be sustainable over time. But it turns out that this diet approach that they proposed, which was heavily plant-based, lots of grains and legumes and very few animal products, fell short of some critical micronutrients that most people don't get enough of already uh, and could potentially deepen and exacerbate those micronutrient deficiencies. So I invited Ty Beal uh, on the show to discuss this. Ty's a global nutrition scientist. He's a research advisor on the knowledge leadership team at Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition or GAIN, where he generates evidence to guide programs and mobilize knowledge related to global nutrition and food systems. And he has a PhD from UC Davis, where he was National Science Foundation graduate research fellow. And he and his colleagues published a critique of the Eat Lancet planetary health diet and uh, highlighted what the micronutrient deficiencies would be if you were to follow uh, that diet and why that is a, is a problem in a world where those nutrient deficiencies are already uh, prevalent, not only in the developing world, but even in rich industrialized countries like the U.S. and Canada. So in this show, I dig into the paper that Ty just published. We talk about uh, what the planetary health diet is, which micronutrients are lacking, and what can be done, if anything, to shore that up. Uh, what Ty's recommendations would be for a truly nutrient-dense and, and 
uh, nutritionally sustainable diet for most of us. And uh, we talk a little bit about some of the responses that he's had from his paper from the authors of, of the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diet, like Walter Willett and also David Katz. So this was a fascinating discussion. As you know, if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, I'm, I'm really passionate about uh, nutrient deficiency and nutrient density and how we can improve our micronutrient status and, and why that is the rising tide that lifts all boats and uh, can help us to achieve almost all of our health goals, at least to some extent. So this was a, a really important interview for me and, and really important topic. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's dive in. Ty Beal, welcome back on the show. Pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Chris. So I think a lot of people have heard of um, the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diet you know, fr from this show, listeners of this show, or people who followed my work or yours. But for those that are completely unfamiliar with this concept, why don't, why don't you just start by defining what that is? Sure. So a planetary health diet in the context of the Eat Lancet report was really trying to design a diet that can meet the needs of a human the global human population now and in the future, as well as uh, stay within planetary boundaries. So a way to think of that is like a healthy and sustainable diet. Healthy for us, healthy for the planet. That's the promise, right? Exactly. And what would you say about how this diet has been received overall, like in the mainstream media and you know, just from what you've seen on Twitter and social media and the, the kind of general reception of the Eat Lancet. Yeah, I think there's there's sort of two camps. I think it's um, highly praised by by a lot of media as sort of the, the solution that we need to be working towards, um, you know, especially by uh, environmentalists, I would say. And there's also been uh, a fair amount of pushback, certainly on social media as well. Um, a little bit less so on mainstream media, but social media has been full of people pushing back on the sort of limits on animal source foods, um, questioning the nutrient adequacy of the diet. And so we really see some polarized responses to the uh, report. So I recently had uh, uh, Ridshin and Lynn Pledger on to talk about more the ecological, environmental, and, and sustainability aspects of an animal-based diet and why animals might actually be necessary uh, in our food system and ecosystem. So I'm going to not focus on that in this conversation, especially because you have published a paper that is specifically about some concerns that you have about the micronutrients lacking in the planetary health diet. And this is an interest that you and I both share just overall, uh, nutrient status and nutrient density and the importance of that for our health and well-being. And you've done a lot of phenomenal work on this subject before. And for listeners who haven't heard our, our recent, my recent, my previous interviews with Ty should definitely check those out because we talk about uh, another paper uh, that I think was from 20 March of about a year ago, right, Ty? Um, March, 2022, the frontiers of nutrition paper. Yeah, exactly. That was last year, same time. Last year where you uh, and your colleagues published the nutrient density ratings of, of foods, and I believe it was the first paper to take bioavailability fully into account. And uh, from that, we just we learned how important animal foods can be in the diet from a nutrient density perspective. So tell us a little bit about the 
Eat Lancet planetary health diet from a micronutrient perspective and what some of the concerns that you have are? Sure. So I'll just start by saying I was actually uh, asked by an editor of a journal about the adequacy of, um, because they had um, some concerns and I think some people had reached out to them. So there, it was not just um, it was not just me who was sort of questioning the adequacy. I think there is there is there were some others, but really, I think for me, I have done enough work on modeling global diets, nutrient density, nutrient adequacy, as well as actual deficiencies in people when you look at their levels of these uh, you know biomarkers in the body. So I had concern because I knew the lower you get with animal source foods, the more challenging it can be to meet your needs, especially for nutrients like iron and zinc, which are, they, they exist in plant source foods, but they're quite a bit less bioavailable. And there are some questions, um, you know, on the Eat Lancet diet, which, you know, we don't have to get into sort of the, the debate about how protective that is of non-communicable disease, but, you know, it's a minimally processed plant-based diet. I don't have a lot of concerns there. It's really more on the adequacy side where it's very high in, in whole grains and legumes, which uh, you know, minimally processed can be can be part of healthy diets, but it's um, it was concerning because they're very high in phytate, and I I don't think um, maybe many people don't realize this, but it was it's sort of off the charts of phytate in terms of how we look at recommended intakes for zinc, for example, where you have these categories of um, you know an unrefined diet, which would which would be about twelve hundred milligrams of phytate. There's a, a lower bioavailability of zinc. This affects iron as well, um, but the what we saw is that wow the phytate on this diet is actually closer to 2000 and even close to 2500 um, milligrams so its impact on bioavailability really isn't well understood so can i just interrupt there just for for the listeners who are not aware of, of what phytate is also known as phytic acid um, can you tell folks a little bit about why that's a concern from a micronutrient perspective yeah, so so phytate binds to minerals like iron, zinc, calcium, and it really inhibits their absorption. So the higher the phytate in the diet, the lower the bioavailability of those minerals. And so that's why, you know, in particular, I was concerned about recognizing that when you have a lot of phytate in the diet, you actually have to consume a lot more iron and zinc. And many people don't realize that, right? It's just, oh, you just have a set amount of iron that you need and a set amount of zinc, but it actually depends on what your total diet is and, and the bioavailability, you know? And the other factor, which I didn't mention is that uh, heme iron is really much more bioavailable and heme iron is only found in animal source foods. Uh, and so you have this sort of difference in the bioavailability from the type of iron as well as uh, the amount of phytate and other anti-nutrients that can prevent that absorption or hinder the absorption. Yeah, so this is something that, you know, I've I've wrote about in my first book, Paleo Cure, way back in 2013, 10 years ago now. And my belief has always been that whole grains and legumes, when especially when they're properly prepared, as some of the traditional methods of, pre of preparing grains and legumes, which most uh, cultures did prior to the industrial revolution and still many cultures do like soaking them particularly soaking them with some acidic substance like uh, yogurt or kefir or lemon juice or something like that can break down some of the phytic acid and there's been some interesting research on this and makes the nutrients more bioavailable but I think it's pretty safe to say that in many situations grains and legumes are being consumed without those traditional methods of preparation in our culture today in most places in the modern industrial world 
And so if you're building your entire food pyramid, if you will, your entire diet around these foods, which can be okay in moderation, but if they're replacing other more nutrient-dense food, that's where the problem and the concern comes. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a question of balance. And like you said, most people are not preparing their their grains and legumes. And we know that because we're using food composition data from foods in the form that they're typically typically consumed, right? So in their typically consumed form, they have a certain amount of phytate. Now we know, of course, like you said, you can ferment, you can germinate, you can um, soak grains, legumes, seeds, etc., to reduce phytate, but that's not being done in the majority of these foods around the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I've tried to get patients to do this for many years, and I would say just a small handful actually would do it, and it, it's it's a lot of work, um, and it that might actually fit in with a more traditional lifestyle uh, where there's shared resources and people are doing those kinds of things together, and it's just part of a, a normal daily routine, uh, but it's not really part of the way that, or, or built into the to the modern way of living for most people. I have seen, yeah, I, I agree with that, but I have seen um, more and more products, at least in the U.S., where they are already, they come as like a sprouted grain. For example, sprouted quinoa. I see that commonly sprouted oatmeal. Even Costco has these products, at least the sprouted oatmeal. Uh, so I think there there could be a movement towards that. I think that's one potential way to sort of improve the bioavailability, and I certainly think it's worth pursuing. Um, I've also seen sprouted um, lentils and mung beans, things like that. But I think you're right that most consumers are not going to be purchasing those products at this point. Yeah, we're talking about a very small minority, but I'm glad you brought that up because they're, they're particularly at health food stores like Whole Foods, natural grocers, et cetera. And even like you said, in Costco and some other more mainstream stores, you can find some sprouted varieties and they are a much better choice from a nutrient density perspective. So what you mentioned zinc and iron is two of the main nutrients of concern uh, and because there are minerals that are bound by, by phytate. Are there other nutrients that you're concerned about on the planetary health diet? Yeah, you know, in this recent study, we also found shortfalls for calcium and vitamin B12. Uh, now, they weren't as large as for iron and zinc, but I do think there's a concern there, um, especially when you think of populations consuming low amounts of animal source foods. And why do you think it is that this was, was this quantified in the, in the paper that was published on planetary health diet? I mean, the, the whole premise was a diet that's healthy for humans and healthy for the planet. So was it that they didn't take, you know, micronutrient density into account as one of the health factors, or was it they weren't, that they weren't considering bioavailability and the impact of, of phytate? In other words, is your concern just an, a lack of the amount of that nutrient on paper, like the RDA, or presence of phytic acid that interfere with um, the absorption of those nutrients, or both? I think it's a combination. You know, I've so the lead author is Walter Willett. He's I think he's probably the world's leading expert on nu nutrition or nutrition epidemiology, and so he, his perspective is sort of the recommended nutrient intakes are not really appropriate you know uh, uh you should either use uh, you know nutrient density you know per per calorie because people need different energy requirements or they're not necessarily applicable um because he's looking at sort of 
health outcomes of these, you know, intakes of different levels. So I, I sort of disagree, but I think his point is just, you know, there's a, there's a disagreement about how much of these nutrients do we need? And I think a big one for that, he would highlight, I mean, he and, uh, David Ludwig published a review in the new England journal of medicine on um, dairy and calcium. And, you know, that, that suggests that people don't need as much calcium as our sort of suggested in the recommended nutrient intakes. Now I'm sort of agnostic to that, whatever, but I've worked with micronutrients enough to know that the data, it all kind of suggests the same thing. The food supply data says there's, there's not enough high, there's not high enough nutrient density in the food supply, the dietary intake data. When we survey people, what did you eat in the last 24 hours? There's not enough micronutrients in their diet. And the biomarkers, when you actually measure in people's bodies, there are widespread micronutrient deficiencies. So for me, I think there's actually, there's a, it's a pretty significant burden worldwide. And I think the question then can sort of become, well, what is the health, what is the real health burden from this? What's the morbidity and the mortality? And that's, I think, a reasonable debate, but for, for me, it's, it's, it's an important issue to, to focus on. I think um, when you look at the original adequacy assessment for the Eat Lancet planetary health diet, it used uh, the other the other issue is that it used different recommended nutrient intakes that were dated, so they weren't the latest evidence. Um, and we also had an update in 2020 where there was sort of a paper out by Lindsay Allen and others that said, "Let's try to let's try to agree on a harmonized set of recommended nutrient intakes." Because if you look if you look into nutrient intakes, many countries or regions of the world have different recommendations. So you have the, you have the, you know, EFSA in, in Europe, the European Food Safety Authority, you have the Institute of Medicine in the US, and then you have others in other countries, and many of them are saying different things and sort of different justifications. So I think there, I think I would acknowledge there is some, certainly there's some uncertainty around what levels of these nutrients should we consume. But I think you would probably agree with this. Many of these are not necessarily based on optimal consumption. So even if you do meet the target for, uh, for a nutrient, uh, it may actually be beneficial to consume above that uh, for many different reasons. Now, I think you can see an argument on the other side where people say, well, there's also a risk of consuming too much. You know, people may say that about iron and I've heard that. So I think it's, there's some things that are open to debate, but from my perspective, we looked at things as objectively as we could trying to use the latest evidence on bioavailability I'm trying to be pretty fair, you know, we, we assumed a 10% bioavailability of iron on the Eat Lancet diet, which I think is pretty generous considering how much phytate is in there. But, you know, there is, there are some animal source foods and there's um, quite a bit of vitamin C. So we wanted to be fair and we still find shortfalls. And so I think it comes down to sort of probably the, the biggest factor is sort of a disagreement about how, what is the, um, what are the recommended intakes and that I think there's some disagreement about. Yeah, I want to linger here for a little bit because I'm very concerned with the idea that of downwardly revising the uh, recommended nutrient intakes rather than increasing them, uh, which I think is what the majority of research suggests we should be doing. Um, there are so many reasons for this, and I don't think you know, one of the problems that I see is that th there's there's a lot of research in different areas that points to the need for increasing, I think, in many cases, the recommended intake of these nutrients. But there isn't a central s sort of source, like to your point, of harmonized recommendations that's pulling all of these different lines of evidence together. 
So an example would be, we know that chronic disease affects nutrient needs in, t in two ways. It increases the demand for nutrients because chronic disease is a stressor on the body, and it decreases, in many cases, the absorption of nutrients. For example, we know that people who with obesity and metabolic issues absorb, they convert less sunlight into vitamin D in response to sun exposure than someone who's lean and, and, and metabolically healthy. And we also know that they absorb less vitamin D from both food and supplements, such that if you look at the scientific research, you can see that the recommended dose for maintaining adequate serum vitamin D levels for someone who's obese with metabolic disease is often five to 10,000 IU versus, you know, maybe 1,000 to 2,000 IU for someone who doesn't have those conditions. We also have uh, you know, increase in environmental toxins that bind to minerals and other nutrients and interfere with their absorption. There's a lot of papers on that. We have an increasingly industrial food system where food is shipped for three or 4,000 miles before it's consumed and it's losing nutritional value um, throughout that, that journey and that process. So, and, and then we have the presence of of anti-nutrients, like you've mentioned with phytic acid, but there are others that can interfere with uh, nutrient absorption such that the, if you were to just look at diet surveys and the amount of nutrients that people are consuming on paper, you know better than anyone that that's not the ultimate amount that we're actually absorbing and using. And as a clinician who has literally tested every single person who's walked through my door for 15 years for nutrient status, I can honestly say that there's been only a small handful of people who didn't have at least one and not multiple uh, nutrient deficiencies as evidenced by their by their biomarkers and their food intake, you know, assessing their food intake with something like chronometer or a similar tool. And these are people who are highly, you know, my patients are not the average population. They're people who are highly motivated. They've typically, you know, <laughs> been listening to blogs and podcasts like mine for a long time, you know, they're not eating a standard American diet, they're shopping at health food stores and eating a relatively good diet, and it's still an issue for those people. So I get really nervous when I hear the idea that, you know, we should be, we don't have to worry about it, and maybe we need fewer nutrients than the RDA has established, especially because in many cases, the RDA has not been updated for 20 or even 30 years. and the formula for the RDA is often based on things like average body weight. And average body weight has gone up hugely in the past 25 or 30 years alone. So yeah, I'm just curious about your take on that because this is your, your really your area of expertise and, and study. And you see, you're aware of all these different lines of evidence and different factors that affect nutrient density. Yeah, Chris, I think you're absolutely right about all of that. Um, I fully agree. And uh, I mean, it's, I don't have any question that the risk of inadequacy is much higher than any risk of harm from, from excess nutrient intake. I mean, you look at the data, our, um, the nutrient density of our diets is, is not great. And you look, you look back to, uh, traditional, uh, cultures or, um, you know, our, our ancestors, they had much higher nutrient densities than, than we consume now. And there are other concerns, um, climate change, as the, as more carbon comes into the atmosphere, there's actually going to be a reduction in the iron and zinc and other minerals in our crops. 
So the very crops that are going to be supplying these plant, these plant rich diets, uh, grains, staple foods, they're going to, there's going to be less iron and zinc and protein in these, in these foods. So we have to pay attention to this. We need to increase the, the nutrient density of foods. I fully agree about that. So I think that the, the concern about, you know, or, you know, the question maybe of, well, what exactly do people need? Well, what do we, what do we need to avoid, you know, the specific effects of some, some disease from a deficiency? Uh, that's a different question than what's optimal. And you talked about vitamin D. We looked at um, prevalence of vitamin D deficiency using a very sort of low bar of the 25 OHD. And that's, that's just, that's not optimal, right? I think, I think there is a case where 50 uh, or higher could, would be optimal for, sure. for when, for when sure. you look at other markers, right? And we're just looking at sort of this, this very low bar and we find widespread deficiency. So I think I am concerned this, just as you are, uh, you mentioned your patients. Well, we looked at people in the US, the UK, all around the world, and we found this is a, a study that came out last fall. We found actually a uh, very high prevalence of deficiency all over the place. So worldwide, two in three women aged 15 to 49 had at least one micronutrient deficiency. And that wasn't even looking at all of the nutrients. You know, there are 25 essential micronutrients. We were looking at uh, three or four. Uh, some countries, you know, in India and Cameroon, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, other, others, it's nine in 10 women. So it's not a small issue, even in the US, uh, you know, over 20% of, of women in that age group are deficient in iron. In the UK, it's similar. And also in the UK, you see folate and, and vitamin D deficiency around 20%. So I agree, I think this is an underappreciated issue. And it's something that requires attention. Hmm. Yeah. And again, even those deficiency statistics are, are using benchmarks, which, which themselves might be out of date or too low, right? So, I mean, a, a, an example that, I, that I've that i used recently is with magnesium. So the current RDA for magnesium is 320 for women and 420 for men, but those RDAs were last published in 1997 using average body weights of 133 pounds for w women and 166 pounds for men. But today, the average body weight is 169 pounds for women and 196 pounds for men. And so uh, some researchers published a study in 2021 where they recalculated the RDAs for magnesium to reflect that increased average body weight uh, in the U.S. population. And they came up with a new adjusted RDA for, for women of 467 to 534 milligrams per day. That's a huge difference. <laughs> you know, that goes from <laughs> 320 to up to 534. That's 200 milligrams per day more uh, that a woman would need. And the male uh, level was 575 to six, almost 660. So again, another 200 point increase. Then you look uh, Chris, at the average. We just, <laughs> we just consume a, just consume an extra thousand calories um, to to keep you to compensate, keep your, right? To compensate, right? <laughs> yeah, but the problem is, as you well know, those extra th thousand calories of cheese doodles and big gulps, and you know, highly processed and refined foods don't contain any nutrients to speak of. So, and yeah, so the average intake of magnesium for U.S. adults is currently three hundred forty to three forty-four milligrams for men, and two fifty-six to to two seventy-three milligrams for women. So women are falling short already of the 
inadequate RDA that was published in 1997, but if we were to use these updated RDAs based on the actual current average body weights today, the, the typical person is falling short 200 to 300 milligrams per day less magnesium. So, you know, that's just one example. Like there's, there's papers that suggest the RDA for B12 should be 300 to 500% higher in order to reliably avoid signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. There's been arguments that the RDA for vitamin D, which is currently only 600 IU, should be at least 1,000 IU per day, if not higher. Uh, Linus Pauling Institute has argued that the RDA for vitamin C should be increased by 200%. So, uh, you know, I, I want there's other things I want to talk about, but I just couldn't let that go because, like, the, the, the you and I, I think just both know too much <laughs> to to be able to accept the proposition that, hey, you know, the RDAs are not only fine, they're they're maybe they're too high, and we should just be satisfied with people not even meeting the RDA. I think that's a really dangerous argument. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. To live your healthiest, longest life, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds, and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data 
to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add InnerAge 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. Yeah, and I think another point to highlight is that the recommended intakes used from the original Eat Lancet adequacy were from 1973. So they were far more dated than the, than the, what you're referring to, which of course, yes, m- many of the, the latest recommendations are still based on evidence that is quite dated. Um, yeah. Okay. I want to, there's one more point I have to make and then I promise I'll let this go, <laughs> but it is the topic of the podcast. So it's, <laughs> we're not, we're not too far off on a tangent. And I'm curious if you ever see if like about this, because I haven't seen any studies that look at this, and it seems mind-bogglingly complex to do so, but also very important, which is the, the concept of nutrient synergy. So we know that nutrients aren't just isolated from each other in our bodies. They have complex and often synergistic relationships. So we were just talking about magnesium. Let's use that as an example. That's required for the absorption and activation of vitamin D. So even if someone is getting enough vitamin D on paper, you know, through diet or sunlight or, or, or supplements, if they are falling short on magnesium, then they will effectively present with a vitamin D deficiency, even though their intake of vitamin D is sufficient. Copper, similar. It's required for the absorption of iron. So if someone is uh, copper deficient, even if they're getting enough iron, they can be iron deficient and even anemic. And I've seen that over and over in my practice, particularly with women who were not responding to iron supplementation or increasing iron in their diet. They were still anemic. We would test their copper, find that they were low, give them copper, and all of a sudden they would be able to, their, their iron levels would go up. Uh, K2 regulates calcium metabolism. So if you're getting plenty of calcium but not enough K2, that calcium can end up in the soft tissues like blood vessels and kidneys and not get into the bones and the hard teeth and hard tissues where, where you want it. So to me, that's another big factor because on paper, if someone's getting enough of certain individual nutrients, if they're low in other nutrients that are required for the biotransformation and activation of those nutrients, then they're still going to have a problem. And I'm not aware of any studies on nutrient sufficiency that even attempt to deal with that, given the complexity. It's a great point, Chris. And I think it's another case for why we should aim to consume most of our nutrients through whole foods. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why, but that's another one. And, you know, at, at the very least, be very mindful when we think about, which maybe we'll discuss, we think about other strategies like fortification or supplementation to really consider the synergistic effect of these nutrients. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what, what you know, in, in your mind, um, what can be done to, if you were to design a planetary health diet, <laughs> let's put it a different way, what, how would it be different than what they've proposed? You know, I don't want the responsibility of trying to design a planetary <laughs> health diet because... Yeah, that's a big task. You're never... Also, uh, nobody's going to say their diet and have, uh, oh, everybody will agree with you, right? Like right. people are going to criticize for all different reasons. So I'll sort of stay clear on the, on the planetary side because like you said, you, you talked about that, you know, yeah, I think it's 
it's reasonable to uh i think to push back on some some of the modeling of the eat lancet to say look maybe maybe we can produce more animal source foods in a holistic way you know using circular diverse agroecosystems and uh, produce more than what they propose but i'm not i won't go there because that's you know that's a whole topic in itself i will say there are many different um, approaches that we could um, use to sort of design a diet that uh, is nutrient adequate and uh, healthy and i will also just kind of say for the the eat lancet diet it was not proposing that everybody should consume this this exact same diet they do have ranges and they did want to say like there's flexibility here but i think we need to aim for uh higher nutrient density so that would be one one suggestion and i think the way to do that would be to uh you know increase some of the types of animal source foods that are most nutrient dense and uh, of course being uh, organ meats being very nutrient dense uh, shellfish especially bivalves and in general, uh, I think we can, it would, the diet would benefit from some increase in animal source foods. Uh, the current diet has about 14% uh, of calories from animal source foods. So I, I mean, not thinking about the sort of environmental impact just solely on, on nutrient adequacy. I think increasing that is a sort of easy way to increase the nutrient adequacy because Plant source foods and animal source foods have complementary nutrient profiles. And the lower you go in, in, in either food group, you have increased risk for trying to uh, meet your nutrient needs. Now, I think when you, you know, listeners may be saying, well, I can meet my nutrient needs on a vegan diet or I can meet it on a carnivore diet. I don't have any issues. Uh, what, what I'm thinking about is at the population level, it's very difficult for, for most people to meet their nutrient needs. Um, and so what we need to do when we're thinking of public health is to be promoting diets that are very protective of those concerns, you know, increasing nutrient density in general. Um, the other aspect that I think we already discussed is to reduce the amount of phytate. Now, phytate can be can have benefits. And I've heard um, I've heard sort of arguments for why we don't you don't want to reduce phytate too much. There can be health protective effects of some phytate. So I think it's more about moderation, though. I don't think we need 2,000, 2,500 milligrams of phytate in our diet to get to have any benefits. And we know that that really hinders the bioavailability. So whether that's re reduced through the processing or, you know, consuming foods, there are actually, there's a, there's a bit of a variation between different types of legumes, nuts, seeds, and whole grains that are higher or lower in phytate. So choosing, choosing ones that are uh, lower in phytate, I think is a, uh, can be a benefit. And there's also breeding strategies. There's a there's a strategy called biofortification where it actually allows um, you know ag agronomists to change the nutrient content of the crops to you know adjust the amount of phytate. Again, they don't you don't want to reduce you don't want to take it all out, but you can actually do that in the breeding process. And that is um, that is being done more and more. And I think that's a good strategy. There are other strategies, and I think it would be not efficient and not effective to only pursue dietary change or to try to have everybody in the whole world consume a perfectly healthy diet because we know that there are many barriers to people having access to all of these diverse foods um, you think about affordability is a big one and animal source foods uh, are generally more expensive now not always but they're often more expensive so there's some challenges with affordability and, and people having access to safe um, foods, having access to refrigeration to store foods, right? Um, fruits and vegetables are actually not always accessible in many low and middle income countries. So when you think about uh, worldwide, the issues around access and 
whatnot, I think we have to consider all sorts of different strategies that we can use. And another one of those is fortification. So staple foods like uh, you can you can use grains, it can be whole grains, uh, you know, oils, whatnot, salt is fortified with iron, it could be fortified with other nutrients as well. I think we need to work on fortification in a smart way, really as a safety net for when we can't have uh, when populations can't consume all of their nutrient requirements through foods, uh, we can make up for that um, in fortification. And I know like like the caveat, like you said, uh, it doesn't, adding a few nutrients is not making up for the diverse uh, food matrix of, of foods that contain lots of these nutrients in, um, you know, synergistic ways, but it, it can really help fill nutrient gaps for people. And it can be done uh, in cost-effective ways and with minimal environmental impact. So I think we need to pursue that. And uh, I mentioned biofortification. This is really, I think, something that we need to pursue in terms of scaling up so that the food that we consume, uh, the plant, the crops that we consume are as dense as they can be in nutrients. Now, when we started breeding crops in the agricultural, you know, agricultural revolution to really increase yields, to increase sugar and starch, it had a negative effect on the nutrient density of those foods. And now we're starting to pay attention to that. I think we need to scale up the, the breeding of crops. Now, this is something, it can be something as simple as using an orange flesh sweet potato compared to a white flesh sweet potato, which the dominant varieties of uh, sweet potato, for example, in Africa are actually white flesh. So there are already efforts in place to, to work on developing varieties that contain orange flesh sweet potato. It's actually, they're higher in uh, vitamin A, they're higher in folate, and that can make a real difference, especially if those can be scaled up. And the fourth thing I would do is um, focus on supplementation when needed. And that's, you know, providing concentrated nutrients either consumed through a pill or through a powder or even in lipid-based nutrient supplements. These can be really helpful for populations with increased needs. So uh, pregnant lactating women, young children, uh, they can be consumed where uh, you add them to food. And really those are, those are, effective ways of increasing nutrients with they all have limitations there's um you know there can be side effects with supplements uh you don't want to you don't want excess for example you don't want excess iron obviously um which which can happen in a in a supplement form but i think all of these strategies are important and the reason is because no no single strategy can be enough to make sure the whole population in the, in the world can actually get the nutrients they need so I think we have to be smart and try to do as much as we can to uh, provide access to all of the populations who, who may not have access to, you know, diets that ultimately would provide all of the nutrients required through the inherent or an intrinsic nutrient density in the foods themselves. That's really fascinating. And, and I agree with all of that. I think there's a lot we can do to shore up our nutrient status, uh, even in our existing food system. And, you know, a lot of the conversations I've had with you before, and also with people that are working on this more from a food production perspective, you know, regenerative agriculture and farming, which uh, will produce much more nutrient dense foods and, and, you know, making changes to the food system overall is going to be a big help. And I also appreciate the distinction you made between what's possible on an individual level and what is likely um, on a population-wide basis, which is what public health is concerned with. Uh, and, and this comes up in research studies as well. You know, it's if you do a study on a particular dietary approach and the compliance is horrible, then 
in that study, the, you know, the results will, will often be presented as a failure. And you might have an individual say, well, what happened to those five people that were able to stick with that diet, you know, for two years? Well, they actually had pretty good results. So yes, you know, from a, from an individual perspective, it's, it's possible that results and, and likely certain even that results will vary, you know, from person to person. But when you're talking about, what is a, a good general recommendation to make on a population-wide basis? You have to you have to take into consideration the uh, you know people's typical behavior, unless you have some magic wand that is going to somehow change that behavior uh, when you introduce your recommendation, uh, because that's just the reality of of the situation. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and behavior change is hard and. We, we, it's not easy to change the demand for foods. You know, people want certain foods because they are they're desirable for many different reasons. Um, I think to your point, we looked at what um, based on the current sort of diets. When you look at the food supply, so all the foods available for consumption at a country um, at the national level, based on existing diets, so what people are currently eating, we really see that when animal source foods get below thirty percent of the calorie supply you start to see a lot more micronutrient inadequacies. Um, and that's, that's just pretty clear. Um, and that's, that's to your point about what people are actually going to consume when they have choices, when they have enough money to buy what they want to buy. But we have to consider these factors. Not everybody's just going to buy the most nutrient-dense foods possible, right? Um, so it's an important consideration. I think you, you, you um, were correct to say that there's a big difference between the public health um, recommendations and what may be possible for an individual who's very health conscious, who listens to, um, you know, health podcasts and reads about it and makes sure that their diet is, uh, you know, top notch. So I know um, when you published this paper that was uh, raising some concerns about the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diet, um, not surprisingly, the authors of that paper and uh, had probably didn't agree with some of your assessments. And I think Walter Willett is submitting a letter to the editor and David Katz published a LinkedIn article with some objections. So I'm just curious what those were and how you would respond to their response. Yeah, so I would, I'll say first off that I had been uh, discussing with Walter uh, along, like as I was creating this analysis, we sent a, a draft of the paper before we even submitted it and he provided feedback. So it's been friendly. I really actually admire the ability of, you know, Walter and uh, Walter Willett and David Katz to, to engage in really constructive, uh, respectful dialogue. So we have some differences, but we're really, it's not like we're worlds apart. And I think it's really important to just highlight that. It, these types of discussions are really important and essential for science. Um, I think the media and social media aims to polarize these issues. And I think there's actually more in common than there is uh, that we disagree on. But yes, there are some disagreements. And I think, um, you know, in the, in the letter, which, which Walter sent to me, he's, he's going to submit, um, you know, I think there's valid points and we are going to respond. And I think we'll have a lot of agreement about that. But ultimately, I think there's, there's still some disagreement about, uh, you know, like you mentioned, what are the recommended intakes and, and, and what should we be aiming for with these diets? And I'm, I think it's important to whatever diet, you know, whatever diet we promote, I, I want it to be nutrient adequate. And I don't want to take a lot of risks on that because I, I see how widespread deficiencies are. So 
uh, I think that's uh, just something that I would want to maintain and be able to advocate for uh, throughout this process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I wish there were more venues and forums for these kinds of um, respectful and informed uh, discussions. I won't even necessarily say debate. I mean, it could be a debate, it could be a discussion. Um, I recently listened to a a discussion about the future of AI and the you know the impact of AI between um, Stuart Russell, who is really kind of literally wrote the textbook on on AI, and then uh, I can't remember the name of the second. His first name was Gary. I can't remember his his last name, and it was it was completely different context, of course, AI versus health and nutrition. But I was struck by just how valuable it was to hear two experts that really respected each other and and listened to one another while they were talking and actually took in what the other person was saying. And in one case, you know, we I sort of listened to one of the experts change his mind in real time based on what he was hearing from you know, the other person in the discussion. And I just, my main takeaway from that was, wow, why doesn't this ever happen in the world of nutrition? It seems like there is just so much more vitriol and polarization and name calling and ad hominem arguments and, you know, like almost to the point of like a religious um, (laughs) debate or discussion where it just starts to go beyond even just the the data and the facts and turn into a you know more of a belief or agenda driven thing so i hope that we can have more examples like this of 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 people just really working together to to find a solution that's in everybody's best interest i i hope so too and i will say there are there are a lot of healthy discussions going on behind the scenes Uh, i know because i've been a part of of many discussions where it is productive it is constructive it is respectful and i don't think the public is seeing those right because those are those are happening over email uh, that's happening in uh, comments to paper revisions to meetings i'm on papers all the time you know with many of the eat lancet authors for example and we have some disagreements, some discussions, some debates. That's good. That's healthy. That's important. And I think the more we can have scientists with different perspectives work together, I think the work that is going to be produced is going to be much more balanced because we all have biases. We all need to have them challenged and checked in a respectful way because we learn from them. I've changed my position through writing papers. Um, I, another researcher who, who I really respect is uh, Christopher Gardner, who, who wrote a paper with recently on animal source foods. And, you know, he's he's been, you know, on a, a plant, mostly plant-based diet for you know, decades. And we have some different views, but I was sort of uh, impressed by the fact that we could really agree about most things and, and recognize that there are different approaches. There are many different approaches to a healthy diet. Um, some of the, the, the biggest things to to address we can agree upon like let's let's really address this these ultra processed foods or the junk foods um, and try to have a more wholesome minimally processed diet so i think um probably it looks because on social media and other public forum uh there is just i think an incentive to be uh critical or um, polarizing but there is quite a bit that goes on among scientists in these discussions i think what um 
people will also see is that there are these formal processes of, uh, you know, writing a letter to the editor and then having the, the authors respond. I think that's helpful too, but we just need a lot more of this, this type of, um, I think, productive discussion between scientists. 100% agree with that. Uh, so what are you working on next? So there's... Can, can you tell us or do you have to kill us afterwards? <laughs> no. Um, so really, um, uh, my organization, GAIN, works on trying to uh, do programs and interventions to change the food system, the food environment, so that people can access healthy foods. So I'm, I'm just, I'm working on some projects to really help um, guide those programs and also try to quantify um, nutrition more accurately, uh, more appropriately in environmental impact assessments. So that's another topic I'm, I'm interested in. You, you can sort of see the many studies that look at, you know, what is the, what are the greenhouse gas emissions of each food that's produced, right? And I think that there, there's a more holistic way to look at that. Part of that is through looking at the food more than in more terms that just than just kilograms or calories or whatnot. And so working on some um, efforts to try to quantify that in, um, I think, more holistic ways. Um, and ultimately, I'm, I'm sort of open to any sort of projects that I can be a part of that help advance this sort of uh, I, what I would say my agenda of trying to improve access to healthy diets for everybody. So, yeah, I, I won't go into all the details, but I uh, really, really enjoy working with people who are trying to be constructive and productive as opposed to sort of debating to try to win an argument. And that's those are sort of the projects that I'm, I'm pursuing and working on now. What a relief. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that sounds like much more fun um, than the alternative. And uh, I, I definitely applaud the work you're doing. I think it's really important. As you know, I think this um, the nutrient deficiency and nutrient density issues have become primary for me. Um, what, you know, after 15 years of treating patients and um, training thousands of healthcare practitioners in 50 countries worldwide and seeing lab results from all over the world and my research on these topics, I've become convinced that addressing nutrient deficiency and aiming for, you know, increasing nutrient density of every bite of food that we put into our mouth is is the rising tide that can lift all boats. It's not to say that it's a panacea and that you know we're, that's going to solve all of our health problems. That's, of course, ridiculous. But I think it's one of the few things that, that we can do that we, that we know will have a positive impact on just about every health condition that we uh, suffer from at, at this point. They're almost... You know, whether you're looking at heart disease or metabolic dysfunction or depression or dementia and Alzheimer's or hormone imbalances, all of those are characterized by some degree of nutrient deficiency. And, you know, unlike big gnarly issues, at least in the industrialized world, like environmental toxins and the global food system and things like that, increasing nutrient status is relatively low-hanging fruit. I mean, the work you do uh, worldwide, that's a tougher, uh, a tougher goal, you know, in developing countries, uh, particularly, I imagine. But in the, in, in the West, in, in the wealthier industrialized countries, it seems to me that 
just even some small steps towards increasing the nutrient density of diet could go a very long way in improving people's health. And, and so this has become sort of a legacy issue for me because, you know, it doesn't require seeing a functional medicine clinician one-on-one and paying thousands of dollars for, for that and for lab testing. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't require anything fancy, really. It just requires a, a more nutrient-dense diet and in some cases maybe some well-targeted supplements, and that can make an enormous difference in individual health and also in public health. I, I find that so striking, Chris, that in, a, in working in the context of the U.S., and I know you work with other patients, but in, in the U.S. where obesity and, and other non-communicable diseases are very high, you still see uh, a, a significant role for addressing micronutrient deficiencies. And I think that's an important takeaway because that's not the narrative you hear in, in many public health messages, right? You don't hear we should be concerned with uh, nutrient adequacy and nutrient deficiencies in the U.S. or other high-income countries. But I, I don't think that's true. I think it's clear from the data that there really are some important gaps and it affects not just the undernutrition, um, but the the relationship with other uh, non-communicable diseases, like you pointed out. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ty, for joining us again. Uh, I know you're pretty active on Twitter. Is that the best place for people to follow you and stay up to date with your work? Yep. I post the latest things I'm working on on Twitter. Um, my handle is uh, Ty R Beal. It's T-Y-R-B-E-A-L. So please check it out and I'll be happy to engage there as long as it's respectful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, no hating, please. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the, 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 the other piece of that, of course, is personal ad hominem tax are not very persuasive, right? <laughs> it's just like, if you want to argue with something that has been published in the literature, publish something yourself or make a constructive argument using data that's actually supportable rather than just slinging mud and calling names, which um, is not very persuasive at all for, for those of us that are paying attention. So again, thanks for your work, Ty. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, send your questions to chriscraster.com slash podcast question. We'll talk to you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.